This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In the modern age, more people are finding love online. According to the latest statistics, more than 50 million people have used online apps like Match.com, OkCupid, and Tinder to meet people and make a love connection. A recent survey found that one in five people polled said that they met their partners online. Making a match online seems like a great option. You no longer have to hope to randomly meet someone who shares your interests, goals, and lifestyle preferences. Instead, you can fill out an in-depth questionnaire that a dating app then runs through an algorithm to match you with prospective dates that you are supposedly most compatible with. But how good a job do these computerized matchmakers do? An old saying is, you have to kiss a lot of frogs to find a prince, or I assume a princess as well. So, does using a matchmaking app or website truly pick out just the right frog for each person? Some say absolutely, and have great meet-cute stories about finding their spouse or partner through a dating app. Others, unfortunately, have found themselves living a nightmare after being connected with a stranger online. In this second episode of the series, Hookups from Hell, you'll learn about two women who at different times were matched with the same man. At first, he seemed like a great catch. Nice looking, a gentleman, and someone who was looking for a long-term relationship. But before long, Wade Ridley would show his true colors as a jealous, possessive, controlling nightmare. After each woman called off the relationship, he would seek deadly revenge. This is Chapter 2 of Hookups from Hell. The Case of Wade Ridley, the Match.com Murderer. Simonson probably didn't expect she'd ever meet someone on an online dating site, but it was 2003, and that's what people were doing nowadays. In her mid-50s, Anne-Marie had built a successful career in real estate sales. Her son Eric was now an adult, and she was ready to find someone special to have a relationship with. So she took a friend's advice and created a dating profile on Match.com. Through the site, she met a man named Wade Mitchell Ridley and they hit it off right away. He was a professional golf caddy and told her he had worked at some of the top golf courses around the country. In Arizona, where they both lived, golf games could be played nearly year-round due to the abundant sunshine the state was graced with. Ridley said he had steady work, caddying for some of the state's top-ranked players. Wade was almost a decade younger than she was, but that didn't concern Anne very much. She looked much younger than her actual age and possessed a youthful energy. She was attractive, with long reddish-auburn hair, a trim figure, and an infectious smile. They began dating in 2003, and at first, things went well. They both enjoyed spending time in nature, and in Arizona, there was an abundance of opportunities for outdoor recreation. Golfing, hiking, and boating were all available to enjoy. One thing that may have given Anne's family and friends, if not Anne herself, pause was how quickly Wade Ridley moved into her life and her home. 
Then early in the relationship, Wade began to monopolize all of Anne's time. Besides her son, Anne had siblings she was close to, as well as many friends she enjoyed spending time with. But Wade became jealous of her time and attention towards anyone else, and this became a frequent argument. Wade became increasingly angry and aggressive toward Anne. Anne finally had enough and broke off her relationship with Ridley. It only made him more angry, and he called her nonstop to complain about how badly she'd treated him and, quote, how he deserved better. Anne stopped answering his phone calls, but this still didn't deter him. Ridley kept calling, leaving angry messages and making threats. He'd show up unannounced at her home and workplace to cause problems. She finally had to resort to filing for a restraining order in an attempt to end his harassment. He no longer showed up in person after that, that Anne was aware of anyway, but still her phone continued to ring. Anne, when she knew it was Ridley calling, would not answer the phone. She hoped that over time he would just give up and stop calling. But Wade Ridley continued to call Anne, ringing her up out of the blue at random times for seven more years. Ridley continued to bounce around the country, caddying at various golf courses in several states. It's very possible that he didn't hold on to these positions very long, not because he wasn't skilled at his job, but because he often exhibited an attitude problem as well as an anger issue with coworkers and employers. Ridley had displayed his temper as early as 1992, as evidenced by a criminal charge on his record for an altercation with a cop. Upon being stopped by police, He exhibited a weapon and acted in a threatening manner, which led to his arrest. In 1999, a domestic violence charge against an ex would be added to his record. And in 2001, Ridley was charged with battery. In 2007, he was hired as a caddy at another golf course in Phoenix, Arizona. His boss, Len Zamora, noted that Ridley was often in a bad mood, making rude comments to other workers becoming angry at anything he considered a slight, and often complaining about being disrespected by others. Zamora tried talking to Ridley about his attitude, but he would just stomp away angrily. One day, when Zamora was briefing the staff about an upcoming golf tournament, he noticed Ridley stewing in the corner, mumbling to himself. After asking Ridley if there was a problem, Ridley loudly insulted his boss, saying that Zamora had no idea how to run a golf tournament properly. He bragged that he had been involved in some of the most prestigious tournaments on some of the best courses in the country and could run a tournament 10 times better than Zamora ever could. He then walked out of the meeting. The next morning, Zamora called Ridley into his office and told him that he could no longer excuse his attitude. Zamora said he was going to have to let him go. Ridley became enraged and began to stalk out of the office. Zamora told him he needed him to return his keys to the equipment building. Ridley reached into his pocket and pulled them out. Instead of handing them to his boss, he threw them up in the air. When Zamora looked up to grab them, Ridley sucker-punched him, connecting his fists with Zamora's jaw. He then ran out. Even after assaulting his boss, Ridley remained angry, accusing Zamora of disrespecting him and firing him without cause. Zamora spoke with managers at other golf courses, letting them know that Wade Ridley had assaulted him and made threats. Zamora felt it was his duty to warn others that Ridley was a danger. When Ridley found out he'd been blackballed at other golf courses in the area, he became furious at Zamora and vowed to get revenge. (laughs) 
In 2010, seven years after Wade Ridley met and began dating Ann Simonson, he was still making harassing phone calls to her. When he could no longer find enough work as a caddy in Arizona, he decided to move to Las Vegas, where golf courses were abundant and he could continue to work even in the winter months. Once again, Ridley began searching on Match.com, hoping to find a woman to date in his new town. He would soon be matched with 49-year-old Mary Kay Beckman. Mary Kay, called MK by her friends and family, was originally from Missouri, but had moved to Las Vegas in 2005. She had married and raised two children in the Midwest, working in sales and in the finance industry. After becoming single, she met a man named Tom Foster and fell in love. She and Tom were both adventurous and looking for a new challenge. In 2005, they decided to move to Las Vegas to get involved in the booming real estate industry in the desert city. MK obtained her real estate license, and she and Tom opened a sales office. Together, they built a successful real estate business. When they weren't working, they enjoyed outdoor activities and traveling together. But in 2009, Tom suffered a massive heart attack. He passed away at just 63 years of age. His sudden death came as a great shock to MK and everyone who loved him. Tom had always been fit and healthy, and he and MK had just begun their life together. MK grieved his loss deeply for some time. MK's friends missed the happy, active woman they used to know and encouraged her to start living life again. After a while, MK admitted that she was lonely. She agreed to attempt to start dating again. Although a bit nervous and apprehensive, MK decided to try an online dating site. She'd heard about Match.com and knew that some of her friends had even met their spouses and significant others through the site. So she decided to create a profile. She filled out the questionnaire expressing an interest in meeting someone who also enjoyed activities such as attending concerts, watching movies, and traveling. She was matched with Wade Mitchell Ridley in September of 2010. MK read the 50-year-old's profile and thought he sounded promising. He was a professional golf caddy from Phoenix, Arizona, who had recently moved to Las Vegas and was hoping to meet someone to date. He said he wasn't interested in casual dating, but really wanted to meet someone for a long-term relationship. In his profile, Wade Ridley described himself as easygoing, open-minded, and interested in new experiences. He said his interests were spending time outdoors, playing golf, and traveling. He had never been married and had no children. He also listed his religious affiliation as Christian slash Catholic. MK was also a person of faith, and she thought she and Wade might have a lot in common. She agreed to be matched with him, and they began connecting online. After a few messages back and forth, MK set up a time to meet Wade for a date. Because he was a complete stranger to her, MK made sure to take extra precautions before agreeing to the meeting they would have dinner in a public restaurant. She would not have him pick her up at her house, but would meet him in front of the restaurant. MK even did a quick Google search for him, but didn't find anything negative listed online for Ridley. She told her friends who she was meeting and when and where. She had shared information with her close friend, Julie Brown, all about the upcoming date. Julie told MK that if she decided she wanted to end the date early, she should send her a text signal so Julie would know to call her on her cell phone. MK could then use the call as an excuse to leave, saying it was a work emergency or some other explanation for cutting the date short. Wade met MK in the restaurant parking lot. Her first impression of him was that he was tall, 
six foot one with an athletic build, and nice looking. When he opened the door for her as they entered the restaurant, she was impressed. Not many men did that anymore, she thought, and she pegged him as a gentleman. The date went well. They talked about where they grew up, places they'd lived, and their travels. The conversation was pleasant, flowed easily, and Wade was charming and respectful. MK liked him very much and was surprised at what a good time she was having. He walked her back to her car and asked her if he could kiss her goodnight. When she agreed, he gave her a quick kiss on the cheek and told her he'd really enjoyed the evening and hoped he could call her soon. He was almost too good to be true, MK thought, and quickly agreed to a second date. There was only one red flag that went up during their conversation that first evening. Ridley, when mentioning an ex-girlfriend, remarked that she had taken a restraining order out against him. That was odd, MK thought, but since he brushed past this information so quickly, and she imagined he wouldn't have mentioned it if it was serious, she pushed it to the back of her mind. Mary Kay had accepted her first date with Wade Ridley during the middle of the week. On the following Friday evening, her company was hosting a fundraising event, and she invited Wade to accompany her. MK was excited about seeing him again, and she thought it would give her friends a chance to meet Wade as well. As MK mingled with guests, she introduced him to her clients and colleagues. MK appeared happy and at ease, but Ridley seemed tense and uncomfortable, not holding up his end of the conversation. He stayed glued to MK and seemed to be sizing up her friends and especially any other men she spoke to. Later, MK's friends would compare notes about Ridley. Several of them said they got a weird vibe from him. By that weekend, Ridley was already staying at MK's house. She found it a bit odd that he didn't bring an overnight bag, change of clothes, toothbrush, or anything else. Almost like he just walked in off the street and had no possessions. On Sunday, October 3rd, MK had been seeing Ridley for about five days, and they were spending the day together. MK always received many calls and texts, especially on the weekends, because of her job as a realtor. Ridley began asking who the calls were from. She told him they were from clients, and was shocked when he tried to grab the phone out of her hand, accusing her of talking to other men. MK became angry and said that it was none of his business who she was talking to, and she didn't appreciate his behavior. He continued to insist that she show him her phone, but MK refused. Later that night, they met a few of MK's colleagues at a restaurant. Over dinner, a male colleague and MK began talking about a training class he was conducting. MK had registered to attend, and he commented that at her level in the business, the class would really be a waste of money. MK said she had considered that, but still thought she might attend. Out of the blue, Ridley became angry, accusing MK of disrespecting him by taking, quote, another man's advice over mine. The rest of the people at the table fell silent. They barely knew this man, MK had just met him, and now he was making an angry scene in front of everyone for something so minor it was ridiculous. They felt embarrassed for MK, especially after Ridley stomped off and sat alone at another table. She went after him and tried to salvage the evening, but was humiliated in front of her friends. At the end of the evening, MK and Ridley drove in silence back to her house. On the way there, she became angry at the idea that this man she'd known for less than a week was already acting jealous, possessive, and controlling. Her relationship with Tom had been one of mutual respect, trust, and love. 
She was not used to this kind of treatment from a man, nor was she willing to put up with it. When they arrived at the house, M.K. shared her feelings of anger and embarrassment at Wade's behavior that evening. Ridley cut her off as he began to head towards the house, saying that they would sleep on it and talk about it in the morning. M.K. couldn't believe her ears. How presumptuous and arrogant this man was, acting as if he was entitled to treat her house as his own. No, she told him, he could not stay. She wanted him to leave immediately. She did not let him enter the house. The next morning, Ridley called early. When M.K. answered, Ridley told her that he was on his way over so they could talk. M.K. said she no longer wished to see him. She didn't see the relationship going any further and told Ridley he shouldn't call her again. But just like he'd done with Ann Simonson, Ridley continued to call M.K. repeatedly. At first, he tried to convince her to talk to him. When he wouldn't take no for an answer, M.K. stopped answering his calls or responding to his texts. He then started leaving angry messages telling M.K. that he, quote, didn't deserve to be treated so badly by her and accused her of using him. She didn't respond. Finally, on October 7th, Wade Ridley left his last message for Mary Kay. After that, she didn't hear from him again and considered the matter over. She assumed that the man she'd known for just eight short days was now out of her life for good, and she was ready to put the whole experience in her past. When Mary Kay Beckman ended her short relationship with Wade Ridley, she put the whole experience behind her. But Wade Ridley did not, and his anger at M.K. continued to burn. Of course, she didn't know that Ridley had a history of becoming controlling and abusive towards the women he'd become involved with. When his relationships ended, Ridley had a habit of continuing to stalk and harass his exes. Anne Simonson knew his pattern all too well, having been the recipient of this harassment for over seven years. M.K. also didn't know that Ridley had burned his bridges not just with women, but with employers as well. His arrogant attitude, disrespect for authority, and paranoia that he was disrespected by others led him to lose many jobs. As a result, he was broke. This was one possible reason that he latched onto women so quickly. They provided him with a place to stay, as he had no fixed address. For the last several years, it seems, Ridley was hopping from job to job, hiring himself out as a caddy wherever he could. Las Vegas was supposed to be a new start for him, but after MK broke things off, Ridley began obsessing over, quote, all the people who had hurt him in the past, and he seethed with anger. Ann Simonson, MK, and even his former employer, Len Zamora, were all counted among the people who Ridley felt had wronged him. For 10 days, Ridley let himself be carried away by his anger and began spinning out of control. He felt both suicidal and homicidal, he would later admit. Everything came to a head on October 17th. Ridley flagged down a police officer. He looked a mess and was barely coherent. He told the officer that he'd been beaten, robbed, and his car had been stolen. The officer took the report, but Ridley insisted he needed help and continued to rant how no one would help him. The officer suggested he go to the hospital for a mental health evaluation. Ridley voluntarily admitted himself into a psychiatric hospital where he would remain for almost six weeks. While there, he reported having suicidal and homicidal thoughts. He said he was full of rage against all the people in his life who'd hurt and used him. He also claimed to hear voices in his head. He was treated, but on December 1st, doctors said he had improved enough to be discharged. 
Ridley insisted he wasn't ready to leave and wanted to stay longer. It's very possible that they believed he was malingering because he had nowhere else to go. Later, Ridley would express anger at the hospital staff for, quote, shoving him off to a homeless shelter instead of helping him. That's when Ridley said he began to make a kill list of all the people he wanted to hurt. At the top of the list were Mary Kay Beckman and Ann Simonson. Throughout the month of December 2010, Wade Ridley planned his revenge against all those he decided had hurt or slighted him. Even though he'd only known Mary Kay Beckman for a week, she was at the top of his list. It had been three months since M.K. had seen or heard from Wade Ridley, and she'd moved on with her life. She had met a man named Dean, and they'd been dating for weeks. She was very happy in her new relationship, and Ridley was nothing but a distant memory. On January 21, 2011, M.K. met friends for dinner. On her way home, she called her boyfriend, Dean. She was still on the phone with him when she exited her car and took out her keys to open her front door. This was the last thing she remembered. M.K.'s neighbor, Kumi Mae Ye, heard screams coming from outside. She looked out of her window and saw a man bending over in the driveway across the street. He stood up and she saw he was holding something in his hand. He brought it down over and over. Ye counted eight times before the man stood up and ran away. She called 911. Wade Ridley had gone to M.K.'s house that evening and waited in the garage for her to return. As she arrived and began walking up to her front door, he sprang out holding a knife. He began stabbing at her and she fell, screaming onto the pavement. He continued to stab her until the knife broke in his hand. He then began stomping on her head and neck until she stopped moving. Thanks to her neighbor who called 911, police and an ambulance were dispatched in minutes. Mary Kay was found unconscious and severely wounded, but miraculously still alive. She was rushed to emergency, where she was placed into a medically induced coma. Mary Kay had been stabbed ten times, her jaw was broken, and her brain had begun to swell from the blows she'd received. Doctors and officers said it was one of the most vicious attacks they had ever encountered. They were shocked that she was still alive when she'd arrived at the hospital. M.K. was rushed into surgery and a portion of her skull was removed in an attempt to reduce the swelling in her brain. Surgeons also had to repair the damage from the stab wounds that she'd received in her face, head, and chest. Mary Kay would remain unconscious for several days. Her friends and family were questioned by police as to who might have done this to her. Mary Kay's purse had been stolen, but investigators theorized that the viciousness of the attack marked it as being personal. Did Mary Kay have any enemies? Had anyone been threatening her? No, they all said. There was no one they could think of that would ever want to hurt Mary Kay. They interviewed her boyfriend, Dean, but he was cleared as a suspect since M.K. had been on the phone with him at the time of the attack. The phone had suddenly gone dead, and the next thing he knew, he was getting a call from her friend telling him that M.K. was in the hospital fighting for her life. No one thought of Wade Ridley. He was a guy M.K. had dated for a minute, and no one had even remembered him and could barely recall his name. Meanwhile, Wade Ridley was already on his way to Arizona to check another person off his kill list, Anne-Marie Simonson.
After Ann Simonson had been harassed with phone calls and texts from Wade Ridley for seven years, the calls finally stopped in late December of 2010. Earlier that month, Wade began attempting to call her again, but this time her boyfriend, Glenn, answered the call. Glenn told Ridley that Ann was with somebody else now and he should back off. Or if he preferred, Glenn said, they could meet face-to-face and, quote, settle it like men. Ridley hung up on him and did not call back. Anne thought it might finally be over. She had long since moved on with her life, meeting Glenn in early 2009. He was a wonderful partner, and they had a great relationship. She still lived in Cave Creek, Arizona, and Glenn had moved in with Anne and Anne's best friend, her rescued Doberman, Bella. She'd also ceased looking over her shoulder so much since Ridley appeared to have gotten the message after Glenn set him straight. Anne was finally able to relax without the threat of Wade Ridley hanging over her head by late 2010, early 2011. But Ridley, rather than giving up, had continued to rage against Anne and was obsessed with getting even with her. Even brutally attacking Mary Kay Beckman and leaving her for dead did not satisfy his rage. Ridley was bent on seeking revenge against at least half a dozen people who, in his mind, had wronged him. On February 10, 2011, just three weeks after the attack on M.K., Wade Ridley hitched a ride and returned to the Phoenix area. He stopped at a Safeway grocery store and held up the store's pharmacist. Threatening the pharmacist with a knife, Ridley demanded she hand over prescription painkillers. He then made his way to Ann's house, located on North 46th Place in the town of Cave Creek. He broke into Ann's house through the rear door and went from room to room rifling through her possessions. He became more angry upon seeing her boyfriend Glenn's clothes and belongings in the home. He then waited for Anne and Glenn to arrive. Anne returned home before Glenn and entered the kitchen. Ridley snuck up behind her, and before she had time to react, he swung a machete at her, striking her and knocking her to the ground. She screamed, and Ridley continued swinging the weapon at her. When she didn't die immediately, he grabbed a knife from a butcher block on the counter and stabbed her with it until she stopped moving. He washed off the knife and replaced it in the butcher block. Taking the machete with him, he made his way to Anne's bedroom and washed off in her shower. He then redressed and grabbed valuables from the house, including Glenn's jewelry, watches, rings, and some of his clothes. He grabbed Anne's car keys and drove off in her 2005 red Toyota Solara convertible. A neighbor stopped by Anne's house just minutes after Ridley left. He was taking his dog for a walk and dropped by to see if Bella could come along. Bella had been home when Ridley broke in, but he remembered from the past that the dog could easily be distracted with a toy. He'd been able to lock her in the garage before hiding in the house. The neighbor saw Annie's body lying on the floor in a pool of blood through the front window. He called an ambulance and the police. It's believed that Wade Ridley learned that Mary Kay Beckman had survived his attack. He made sure that his second victim was dead before leaving the house. He then pointed Anne's stolen vehicle towards Las Vegas, still on a mission to kill Mary Kay. When homicide detectives began questioning Annie's friends and family about who may have wanted to hurt her, they were immediately informed that they should be looking for Wade Mitchell Ridley. Phoenix police put out a be on the lookout for Ridley and for Anne's stolen car. They discovered a clue at the crime scene. 
By the back door where the lock had been broken, a notebook filled with handwritten notes was found. Some of the writings mentioned a stay in the mental hospital. Others were unhinged-sounding rants. The writer detailed his rage-fueled hate for at least half a dozen people who he vowed revenge against. Glenn Kalai, Anne's boyfriend, and Len Zamora, his ex-boss, were two men included on the list, but most on the kill list were women. Police discovered that some of Glenn Kalai's credit cards had been stolen from the home. Charges had been made on the cards. They had been used at gas stations and stores starting in Phoenix on the day of the murder and continuing in Nevada the following day. Following the trail of receipts, detectives contacted homicide detectives in Las Vegas, where the last purchases placed their suspect. Las Vegas PD was provided with a description of the stolen car and possible suspect. An investigator for the Las Vegas PD, who also received a list of the items stolen from the crime scene, did a check of local pawn shops to see if any of them had turned up. He hit pay dirt when it was discovered that several of the items had been pawned at a shop near the Las Vegas Strip on February 12th. Officers were directed to patrol the area for the suspect vehicle. Late in the evening of February 13th, an officer saw a red convertible with Arizona license plates parked just off Las Vegas Boulevard. It matched Ann Simonson's stolen car. The officer called for backup, and Ridley was quickly surrounded by patrol cars. He gave himself up quickly. The machete used in the attack on Anne-Marie Simonson was found in the vehicle. Ridley was interviewed by Phoenix homicide detective Paul Dalton, who was heading up the investigation into Anne's murder. He'd traveled to Las Vegas when it was apparent that Ridley had fled there. Dalton began asking about Anne-Marie Simonson's murder, and Ridley immediately confessed in detail, telling the detective how he had sought her out, hid in her home, and murdered her. Ridley told Dalton that, quote, The people that I hurt were people who hurt me first. I let it go for years, Ridley continued, admitting, I was angry, very angry, and my brain just blew up, end quote. Ridley said he had a list of people he planned hits on, including his ex-wife and her boyfriend. Then Ridley announced, There's someone who's already been hit. Her name is Mary Kay Beckman. When Dalton asked him for details, he explained that a month earlier, he had stabbed an ex-girlfriend and left her for dead. I don't know if she lived or not, he claimed. He also told the detective that he had met both Mary Kay and Anne on Match.com. Las Vegas detectives were informed of Ridley's confession, and he was charged by Las Vegas police with the attempted murder of Mary Kay Beckman. Ridley blamed his victims for, quote, hurting and using him. He also said he wanted Mary Kay dead, quote, because of her attitude. Ridley said the murders were also a result of his mental illness. Blame was also placed on the mental facility staff, whom Ridley said had kicked him out before he was ready. Mary Kay was informed that Wade Ridley had confessed to her attempted murder and was in custody. She was shocked. She couldn't believe that a man she knew for less than 10 days and had not seen for over three months afterward could be responsible for such a vicious attack against her. When she learned that he had murdered another woman just days after almost taking her life, she was devastated. Wade Ridley, in custody in Nevada, first faced charges for the attempted murder and robbery of Mary Kay Beckman. In September of 2011, 
Ridley agreed to take a plea bargain. He entered an Alford plea, which didn't require him to admit guilt, but only acknowledged that the state had enough evidence to find him guilty. Mary Kay was relieved that she would not have to endure a trial. She had spent seven months enduring multiple brain surgeries and needed to focus all her energy on recovering from the horrendous injuries she'd suffered. She also was not eager to have to face Wade Ridley in court. Mary Kay was satisfied that justice had been done in her case when Ridley was sentenced to 28 to 70 years in prison. The judge said that it was appropriate to sentence Ridley to the maximum term allowed by law. The judge declared upon handing down the sentence that Ridley was, quote, a 10 as far as a danger to the community, end quote. Ridley next faced a first-degree murder charge in Maricopa County, Arizona, for the murder of Anne-Marie Simonson. Ridley was serving his sentence in Nevada while awaiting extradition to Arizona to stand trial. In May 2012, after serving eight months in prison, Wade Ridley killed himself in his prison cell, reportedly by suffocation. If Ridley had lived to answer for the brutal attack on Anne, he very likely could have faced the death penalty. In January of 2013, Mary Kay Beckman filed a lawsuit against Match.com. The nearly $10 million lawsuit claimed that, quote, Match.com does not adequately warn customers of the risks of online dating, nor does it adequately screen out members who have a history of violence or pose other potential risks to others, end quote. Attorneys for Match.com called the lawsuit absurd. They released a statement to the press saying, what happened to Mary Kay Beckman is horrible, but the lawsuit is absurd. The many millions of people who have found love on Match.com and other online dating sites know how fulfilling it is. And while that doesn't make what happened in this case any less awful, this is about a sick, twisted individual with no prior criminal record, not an entire community of men and women looking to meet each other, end quote. Mary Kay spent the next few years in court. Each time, her suit was dismissed with the court time after time siding with Match.com. The company was shielded from responsibility by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which offers broad legal protections to Internet companies and provides liability protection to Internet platforms. In essence, Section 230 states that people who use such a platform can be sued, but the platform itself cannot. For example, if someone posts a defamatory message on Facebook about another person, the defamed person can sue the individual, but not Facebook. The lawsuit went all the way up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, but that court also determined that the company could not be held responsible for Mary Kay's injuries the U.S. Supreme Court declined to review the case. Mary Kay Beckman nearly lost her life, and her hospital bills will total over $400,000 when all was said and done. Still, she says she is grateful to be alive, although she suffers from terrible PTSD as well as survivor's guilt. She continued to ask herself why she had lived and Anne-Marie Simonson had died. Feeling tremendous guilt, M.K. reached out to Anne's family. Anne's sister Marcy returned Mary Kay's call. Mary Kay wanted to know how she could best honor the memory of Anne Marie. Marcy told Mary Kay, live life and enjoy life. That's what Annie would have done, and that's what she would want you to do. Over time, MK has done just that. 
Today, she is thriving in her real estate business and her life. She took what Anne's sister said to heart, so much so that she added the motto, live life and enjoy life, to her brand, adding the sentiment to her emails, business cards, and other marketing materials. She continues to reside in Las Vegas and enjoys spending time with her two children and her dogs. Anne-Marie Simonson's family encouraged those who wanted to honor her memory to make donations to Desert Harbor Doberman Rescue of Arizona, the organization where she'd adopted her beloved Bella. Just some final thoughts. So do we think that Wade Ridley was mentally ill, schizophrenic, or just an angry loser? What I noticed is that Wade Ridley could act perfectly normal in relationship with others until he wanted control. This was apparent in personal relationships as well as relationships in jobs, etc. And he often lashed out in violence when he didn't get his way. He also blamed everyone else for everything that went wrong in his life. We didn't get to know a lot about him since there was no trial held. A psych report from his time spent in the mental hospital would have been helpful, but of course that is confidential. What we do know is that Wade Ridley takes no responsibility for any of the horrible actions that he committed. Ridley didn't achieve much in his life that we know about. He had no fixed home, no family, a spotty work record, and a trail of broken relationships behind him. His relationships were also very problematic in that he was often controlling, abusive, and after the relationships were broken off, he would stalk his exes and harass them. But even though Wade Ridley was pretty much a failure in his entire life, he acted arrogantly with other people. He always acted like he knew best, he knew better than his boss. He was very controlling and bossy in his relationships. He always acted like he knew best. He became angry at MK, who he had barely met, for listening to others' opinions above his own, which he didn't even know him very well at that point. Like I said, he had never accomplished anything much in his life. But both Anne and MK had successful careers, they had close family relationships, good friends. In my opinion, Wade Ridley was jealous of these women that he was dating. But at the same time, he was taking advantage of what they could provide for him, a home and security. He often started moving in right away. I think the jealousy probably came in because he felt he should be the one that had the home, the possessions, etc. One clue about this is that he stole from Anne after killing her, he also took her boyfriend's clothing and jewelry, etc. He also made comments often about deserving better, deserving more. And I think that that also played into his state of mind, where he looked around him and saw everybody else doing better than he was, even the women that he was dating. And he became angry and enraged that he did not have what they had. And he decided to take everything from them, not only their possessions, but their life. I think he killed because of rage, like he said, but not because either woman was to blame for his sorry life, but because they had what he didn't. I also think that he was a coward because although he had a kill list that listed men, his ex-boss, Anne's boyfriend, etc., he first targeted the women instead. I also wonder whether the fact that Glenn wasn't home was something that he knew at that time and that he waited until he knew Anne would be coming home alone. One other question to consider, are online dating apps dangerous? Perhaps, but I would say they're no more dangerous than any other way we meet people, whether that's randomly in bars, by chance encounters, or even people we work with. 
I mean, how much do we really know about them? Maybe introductions by friends and family who know these people and their background might be a little bit more safe. But just in case, you should probably also do a background check, no matter how cynical and unromantic as that may sound. So what do you think? Have you used online dating apps? Did you feel safe doing so? Would you ever consider using a dating app if you haven't done so before? Let us know your thoughts on our Facebook group. Search for the Once Upon a Crime Facebook fan page and let us know what you think. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative production and research assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.